If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 will be in verses 43 through 48 today as we finish up our sixth illustration of what the greater righteousness of the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to is. And as we begin, let me ask you this question. What are you known for? When others think of you, what comes to their mind? That's a question you can ask of individuals, but you also might ask it of other things. You could ask it of a city. You might ask it of the city of Louisville. What is Louisville known for? Interesting, in recent days with events, they may be known for some of the protests and some of the unrest that's happening here in our city. But on normal days and throughout the year, Louisville is known for the Kentucky Derby. Louisville is known as the place where Muhammad Ali was born. Louisville is known for bourbon. What about uh, what about a nation? You might think about a place like Australia. What is Australia known for? We think of mundane things. We might think about the Sydney Opera House. Or you might think about all the exotic and dangerous animals that live in Australia. So what about you? What are you known for? Maybe you're a, a great cook. Maybe you're someone who is a a great encourager to others. Maybe you are athletic or you are funny. Of course, we could also be known for some of our not so good characteristics. Maybe you're known for your short temper or maybe your bad driving or just that you're unpredictable in different ways. If cities and, and countries and people can be known for certain characteristics, then certainly Christians can as well. What are Christians known for? What are followers of Jesus known for? What is the distinguishing feature of Christianity? You can answer that question a lot of different ways. You could answer it theologically with what we believe or what we deny. You could answer it in terms of cultural issues, what we're for and what we're against. You can answer it historically in terms of the, the influence of Christian thought. And also, like as with, with individuals, some people have good things to say about Christians and others have bad things. People could say, what do you think about when you think about Christians? And someone might respond, well, they're judgmental. They're hypocrites. What should Christians be marked for, by? And, and what should Christians be known for? We've seen here in Matthew 5 that Jesus is calling us to a, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's greater than their, their outward righteousness because it gets to the heart of God's law and asks for obedience from our hearts. It's focused on, on living holy for the Lord. And that, that wholeness, that, that kingdom righteousness we find is summed up in one word. And it's the word love. The mark of the Christian is supposed to be love. Love for God and love for neighbor. In this final illustration of kingdom righteousness, Jesus calls us to love. And the emphasis of Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, is not so much on how we are to love others, but on who we are to love. Jesus is calling us as his followers to an indiscriminating, an undiscriminating love. A love that extends to all people, including even our enemies. Very simply, he says to us, love everyone. That's our big idea for today. I believe that the righteousness of kingdom that Jesus is calling us to here in these verses is summed up simply by saying, 
love everyone. We are all painfully aware, aware of the fact that our world has enough hate and anger to go around. There is plenty of judgmentalism and condemnation and prejudice, and we would know that even if we didn't have the television and we didn't have the internet. We can find those things deep down in our own hearts and even in our own relationships. It's clear in this world and in our hearts and in our lives and even in our families that we don't need any more division. We don't need any more strife or self-seeking or revenge. Classism, sexism, racism, and all things like them are in full supply in our world. But a love, a love that is, that is rooted in the truth of the gospel, a love for all people that finds its source in the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the comfort of the Spirit, this is what everyone in the world is thirsty for. It's what we will shine. It, it, it's, it's this kind of love that will shine like the, the sun into the darkness of this world. This kind of love is, is what will reveal that we are followers of Jesus through faith. If we are children of God, members of Jesus' kingdom, and we're filled with his spirit, then we are called to love everyone. Are we ready to do that? Well, let's read Matthew 5, 43 through 48 and find out. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before we get into the, the meat of this passage, I just want you to look for a moment with me how, at how the, this entire sermon uh, up to this point, and, and this section in particular, how it all holds together. As we've walked through these six illustrations in chapter 5, we've seen how, how love for God and love for neighbor are the ways that we fulfill each one of, of these uh, illustrations, each one, how we fulfill um, the law in each one of these, these realms. And Jesus ends here with a sixth illustration that calls us to love and a love for everyone. It forms a bookend with the first illustration, as love is certainly the opposite of, of murder. And it also ties in with the, the fifth one that we looked at last week, where we, we see that we're called to sacrificially love those who, who seek our harm. And now he's calling us to, to a love for all people enemies and persecutors included. But, but the connections are not simply found in, in this section. We can go all the way back to the Beatitudes that open the Sermon on the Mount, and we can find that there's a, a reference there to, to being peacemakers, and by being peacemakers we are called sons of God, just, just as we're told here in this passage that, that love reveals that we are true children of God. Because the righteousness of the kingdom shows 
who we belong to, and it causes us to shine as lights in the world and to bring glory to our Father in heaven by imaging him in this world. We can also note how the, the Beatitudes end on the, the note of persecution. And this, this sixth illustration from Jesus also speaks of persecution. And one final connection, we'll, we'll spend some time looking at, at verse 48, but it, it recalls this theme of righteousness and of, of wholeness from, from chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And it serves as a, a summary of this entire section, not just verses 43 through 47. I say all this to, to point out that Jesus, as God himself, speaks with authority and intricacy and beauty and, and truth in this sermon. It's a wonderful, beautiful teaching that he gives us because it's divine in its origin. But also, I want to remind us that we can't read these verses or any verses of Scripture in isolation. But especially with this teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to find ourselves submerged in and surrounded by the words of Jesus here and trying to make these connections so that we can rightly walk the path of righteousness that he is calling us to. And knowing this, this context that, that we've been studying helps us to apply this passage rightly and to feel the force of the words of Jesus here. All right, well, back to these six verses. We've noted many times the, the structural pattern that ties this chapter together. It's found in the repetition of the words you have heard it said, but I say to you, followed by some practical application. The first statement here introduces the teaching of the law that's been misapplied by the teachers of the law. And in, in, in few places is it more clear that the law stated at the beginning was a distortion of what God intended than it is here in verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies or your enemy. Uh, note that, that Jesus does not introduce these words, and nor has he up to this point, with the, the Old Testament pattern of quoting God where it says, it is written. But rather he says, you have heard it said. Meaning your teachers, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they, they have taught you these things. But Jesus is saying that they were missing the point of the scriptures and they were twisting them for their own self-interest. And here in verse 43, we find that they distorted the call to love into an excuse for hate. They distorted the call for love into an excuse for for hate. It'd be funny if it wasn't so sad. If you're looking for the exact Old Testament quotation for verse 43, you won't find it. You can find that first part, most notably in Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But the Pharisees that define neighbor purely as a, as a fellow Israelite. Therefore, their conclusion was that they, they could have a very different attitude towards outsiders and foreigners than they did towards fellow Jews. And therefore, they felt it right to add that second part, and you can hate your enemies. Love your neighbor, love your fellow Israelite, and hate everyone else. Now, it could mean, uh, as we see in the Old Testament, sometimes that, that your, your love for your neighbor, your love for your fellow Israelite is so great that it makes all your other love uh, look like hatred. 
But I'm not sure that that's what they were driving at here. Granted, the Old Testament does have some very strong teaching with regard to the enemies of Israel. We read things like Psalm 139, verses 21 through 22. It says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Strong words, but, but this passage, along with passages like Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, with prohibitions against the Ammonites or the Moabites entering the assembly, or even the commands in the book of Joshua to kill the, the Canaanites and to wipe them out completely, none of these finally communicate a command for Israel to hate their enemies or to hate all non-Israelites. Dr. Jonathan Pennington speaks of, of, this pas of these passages as more descriptive than prescriptive. And he says that even the rare order to hate evil speaks to hating injustice, not exacting hell-bent destruction on individuals. Ultimately, this is a very complicated issue, but we can be sure that these commands were not supposed to lead God's people to hatred of every non-Israelite. And yet that was what was being taught by the Pharisees and by others. And here we, we ask if, if we could fall into a similar trap. Could we twist God's call to love into a call to hate those who are different from us? Could we maybe take the call to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as a reason not to love those who are outside the family of faith? There is a unique calling within Christianity to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we will have a, a, a love for those who are in our local community of faith that's different from the love that we have for those who are in the universal church and that's different even from those who are not children of God through faith in Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 13 and John 17 that the new commandment of the kingdom is to love one another, to love each other, as he has loved us so that all people will know that we are his disciples. There's a unique love amongst God's people. But this unique love for sisters and brothers in Jesus does not rule out universal love for all, nor does it teach hatred for those outside of the Christian faith. Francis Schaeffer wrote this, in his book, The Mark of the Christian, he says, We are to love our fellow men, to love all men, in fact, as neighbors. All men bear the image of God. They have value, not because they are redeemed, but because they are God's creation in God's image. Modern man who has rejected this has no clue to who he is. And because of this, he can find no real value for himself. As Christians, however, we know the value of men, and Christians are not to love their believing brothers to the exclusion of their non-believing fellow men. That, says Francis Schaeffer, that is ugly. What the Pharisees taught was ugly. And if we take the command to love one another and make an excuse for only truly loving our fellow Christians and for hating our enemies or those who are not like us, then we have distorted the call to love into an excuse for hate. And that is ugly. So do we only love those who are like us, who look like us and act like us? 
and speak like us and live like us, who, who speak the same language as us and live in the same country as we do, whose skin pigmentation matches ours, whose morals match ours. Do we, do we love those who are easy to love because they are so much like us? Or do we love everyone? Do we, do we value all people as created in the image of God, regardless of their race, their gender, their economic status, their religion, their politics, or anything else? Do we love all people? The, question of this pas the questions of this passage are, are something like, how far does kingdom-shaped love extend? Who am I called to love? And those are not unlike the question posed in Luke 10, where this idea of, of twisting the command to love into an excuse to hate seems to be lurking in the background. In that chapter, a lawyer asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And the answer was to keep the core commandments of the law, to love the Lord your God with all, you, with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. These laws were in, interconnected in the teaching of Jesus for because to, to love God was to love those created in his image and to love those created in, in his image was to love God. This is why Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two forty, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But back to Luke 10, we're told that the lawyer in an effort to justify himself after after asking, you know, how can I fulfill all righteousness? And in an effort to justify himself, in an effort to lower the standard of righteousness that Jesus had just stated so that he could meet its demands, he asked, and who is my neighbor? Who do I need to love, Jesus? And Jesus responds with a story that we have come to know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable where a Samaritan who would have been considered an enemy of the Jews and who therefore some taught it was perfectly fine for them to hate, that that Samaritan enemy is in fact the hero of Jesus' story. He shows love to an injured Israelite when no one else would. He, he models love for neighbor that included all people. And Jesus told his hearers at the end of the story when they reluctantly admitted that that Samaritan was the only true neighbor in his story, he told them to go and do likewise, to go and love like that Samaritan, not simply in sacrificial ways, but in an, in an indiscriminate way, to love widely, to love everyone. So when Jesus speaks with his authoritative, but I say to you here in Matthew 5, 44, what is his call on our lives? We said that it is to, to love everyone, which I still hold is true, but very specifically here in verse 44, he calls us to a supernatural task. He says that we are to love our enemies. Love our enemies. At dinner the other night, our, our kids asked Andrea and I, uh, who, who was your arch nemesis in high school? Or who was your arch nemesis in college? I'm not sure where they got, they got this idea that we had such enemies in, in high school or in college, but it was interesting to kind of think back and try to remember who my perceived enemies were in those days. I wonder who you would consider your enemies, your arch nemesis. Who are the people that are against you? Real or perceived enemies may simply be those who are different from us. 
in a number of different ways. We turn differences into division. Thinking about who our enemies are and drawing from the Sermon on the Mount, you might think of, of enemies as those who slander you falsely, who persecute and, and mock you for your righteousness, who mock God's people for their, for their purity, who utter all kinds of evil falsely about you or about the church. Or maybe we would say that we would say that our enemies are those who attack our personal dignity, or they take our personal possessions and finances, or they stomp on our personal rights. How are we to treat them? How are we to treat our enemies? Jesus says that we are to love them. We are to bless those who curse us. We are to seek the good of those who seek our harm. As I've said, this passage is, is more focused on the objects of our love than the practical outworking of it. But it's very clear that there's, there's one application that Jesus presents here, and it's that we are to pray for our persecutors and our enemies. Did you see that in verse 44? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can think of no better place to find examples of this than the early church in the book of Acts. We can see that in Acts 4. We can see it in Stephen, who echoed Jesus' prayer of saying to his murderers, Father, forgive them, do not hold their sin against them, and so many other places in the New Testament. And Christians throughout the centuries show us that prayer for our enemies is a powerful act of love. We can pray for God's mercy and grace to them. We can pray that God would open their eyes to salvation through faith in Jesus. And thereby we're praying that God would make them not our enemies, but that he would make them part of our family. We may not be able to actively seek the good of our enemies. That may not be possible for us. But we can pray and we can pray that God would pursue them with loving kindness that God would bless them. There are certainly practical ways that we can love our enemies beyond prayer. And I, and I think that the previous illustration helps us uh, a lot in speaking to that. But prayer is a wonderful place to start. And it's a wonderful place to end. And it's a wonderful place to remain when it comes to loving our enemies. Have you prayed for your enemies lately? For those who seem to be against all that you hold dear for those who are seeking your harm or the harm of those you love for the the persecutors of the church worldwide for any enemy that we can come up with may god give us a love for our enemies that drives us to our knees on their behalf you, you may be wondering why we should love our enemies like this well, beyond the fact to simply say, well, Jesus tells us to, and therefore we should do it. We find two reasons why we should love our enemies. And the first is in verse 45, and then the second is in verses 46 and 47. Why should we love our enemies? The first reason is that this love looks like the love of the Father. This kind of love looks like the love of our Heavenly Father. Contrary to popular and even Christian belief, sometimes, God loves his enemies. It may sound strange for me to say that, but God loves his enemies. Will he punish them with perfect justice one day? Yes, he will. But the, that does not take away from the fact that he loves and he cares for all people, including his enemies. 
And how do we know that? Well, right here, Jesus gives us two reasons. The fact that the sun shines and the fact that the rain falls on everyone. While we get the majority of our food from the grocery store, human history has been one where individuals were dependent on their farms and their gardens for the food that they were going to eat. And while our produce may not come from our, backyard, from our backyards, we also are dependent on the sun shining and on the rain falling if we're going to eat. And since the day that God created human beings, he has been sending the sun and the rain on everyone. The people who curse his name, the people who deny that he exists, those who harm those that are made in his image, and those who worship him alike. We all eat and drink every day. We all continue to exist in this world. And we all do so because of God's love for everything that he has made, including for his enemies. The connection found in verse 44 is that loving our enemies like God loves his enemies makes us God's children. Not in the sense that, that we earn our status as children of God through our good works. No, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. But we show that we have been adopted as children of God through faith in Jesus when we look like our Father. And how do we look like our Father? The family resemblance is found in love for all people, especially for our enemies. Paul talks about this idea in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. John writes this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, more focused on love amongst the brethren, but it extends out. I would say, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When we love our enemies, we show the world what the love of God looks like. We show the world what God looks like and therefore we glorify him. That may find expression in, in meeting practical needs in the same way that God sends sun and rain and all, on all people. But we also know that God has shown his love for us in sending his son. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, so our love for our enemies may look like kindness to them in small ways, but it also may look like laying down our lives for them. Devoting all that we are to serve and to love those who mock us and who deny the God that we love. 
loving people by laying down our lives to take the gospel to them in places where they don't want the gospel to come. We do this because this love, this kind of self-sacrificing love, looks like the love of the Father, and therefore it glorifies Him, and it points people to Jesus as the Savior of the world. This love that we're called to, why would we do it? Because this love looks like the love of the Father, and we want to glorify the Father. We want to image Him in this world. We want the people to see and to know the love of God in Christ. And when we love all people, including our enemies, we show them what it looks like. Secondly, we love our enemies because this love looks like nothing else in the world. We love our enemies because this kind of love looks like nothing else in the entire world. The Pharisees thought they were a cut above everyone in the way that they kept the law, that, that they were elite in their righteousness. But Jesus tells them, and he tells all of his followers, that if we only love those who love us, we're no different than anyone else. But if we would love those who are different from us, if we would love those who actively work against us, then and only then are we showing the world a love that is unlike anything else they have ever seen. If we love our enemies, then we are showing forth the love of God and we're showing the world a love that they've never seen before. And here's the amazing thing. If we love our enemies and we love them well and, and we show the love of Christ to them and we, we preach the gospel to them, then they will eventually no longer be our enemies. They'll become our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what happened in the New Testament church as the gospel broke into the Gentile world and broke down the wall of hostility and hatred that had been between Jew and Gentile. It was understood by everyone that Jews and Gentiles were enemies. But then the church came along. The, Jesus came along and, and suddenly Jews and Gentiles started gathering together on Sundays and they're eating meals together and they're worshiping together. They were this new humanity, not divided by anything, not divided by gender or by race or by ethnicity or by any other external factor, but united through faith and through the indwelling spirit of God. That is our hope. That's our hope for this world. In the midst of all that's happening in our nation, we're watching this just be torn apart, so much division, Division, not simply along racial lines, that's so clear right now, but you come up with any way, any reason for people to be enemies, and we are dividing, and we are dividing, and we are dividing. But our hope, our dream is the same dream from decades ago, that all God's children, regardless of sin, skin color, regardless of any other dividing factor, would join hands and sing together of the freedom that's found in Jesus. We long for the church to model this kind of unity, this kind of love for all people. God, forgive us, because the church so often has, has modeled division. We've been the place where these schisms and, and, and these fights are just as clearly seen. 
We long instead for a church that's as diverse as the community that it's in, as diverse as the world that we are in. And we long that Sunday mornings would not be the most segregated time in, in, in the week, but they would be the most desegregated multicultural moment of every week as people from all races and all ethnicities and all classes and all genders join together to worship Jesus. Because in Christ, love does not discriminate. That kind of unity can only come when we are committed to love like God loves, to love all people, especially our enemies, especially those that we might perceive as different from us. That's how the Father has loved us. And that's a love unlike anything the world can muster up on its own. That's a love that can change the world. It's our only hope. The statement of verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It, that statement sums up uh, this whole section in the Sermon on the Mount that began back in chapter 5, verse 17. And, and it's a companion to, to verse 20 statement about a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, one way to understand that statement is to say that the righteousness of the kingdom is beyond our grasp. And therefore, these illustrations are meant to, to point us to faith in Jesus, who has fulfilled all righteousness in a way that we never can. And there's certainly truth in that reality. Jesus is, is not laying out for us what we need to do to enter into the kingdom based on our own merit. He alone has fulfilled the law through his righteousness and, and he has paid the penalty for our lawlessness through his death on the cross. We enter God's kingdom through faith in what Christ has done, not based on what we can do. However, that doesn't seem to be the force of Jesus' teaching here. Is he, is he laying out all these instructions about kingdom righteousness simply so that we can respond, we can't do that, and so that we would turn to him? Uh, the law does do that, but I don't think that that's the point here. I think rather Jesus is calling us to a, a perfection of life, which is better understood as a, a wholeness or a completeness of, not, of life. So think about it in this way. In contrast to the, the divided and the duplicitous hearts of the Pharisees, Jesus is calling we who want to follow him, we who are his followers through faith, he's calling us to wholehearted, all of life devotion to his kingdom wholehearted all of life devotion to this new kingdom he's calling us into the blessedness and the flourishing of his kingdom that's made possible through his indwelling spirit he's calling us to to shine like cities on a hill glorifying our father as we love him and as we love others with this kingdom wholehearted fully devoted righteousness as god's children we are not those who simply refrain from murder, but we reject anger and we seek reconciliation with all people. We are not content to, to simply not commit adultery, but, but we seek a sexual faithfulness that encompasses our hands and our eyes and our whole hearts. We are not flippant with our marriage vows, but we hold to the depth and the commitment intended in them. We don't play around with our words. We don't play around with the Lord's name. But we seek to live lives of radical truthfulness in word and in deed. We don't seek loopholes for personal revenge, but we strive to selflessly love our enemies. In fact, we strive to love everyone. 
We strive to love everyone. We, we show ourselves to be children of our Heavenly Father, who is gracious and kind to everyone. Verse 48 drives us to say that as true followers of Jesus, seeking the, the righteousness of the kingdom, our goal in life is not to reach some bare minimum of commitment. Verse 48 is calling us away from that. Rather, we long as followers of Jesus to be holy and wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. Because it's there, it's there in full devotion to Christ that we will find joy. It's there that we are going to glorify our Father in heaven. And it's, it's in that fully devoted life that we will draw people to worship the Lord with us. May he accomplish this in our hearts through his spirit. Let's pray to that end. Father, we confess that our hearts are often so divided. Lord, we seek other things. We seek the bare minimum. We seek the loopholes. We're not as fully devoted to you as, as we need to be, as we long to be. So, Father, forgive us. Thank you that Jesus has modeled this for us, that he has shown us the righteousness of the kingdom, not so that we have to keep it, Lord, but so that we have a, an example to follow, so that we, we have the righteousness of Christ, and we have his spirit, and now we can walk in these ways, and Lord, we long to do it, and especially in this realm of loving all people, including our enemies. God, help us. Drive us to, to prayer for our enemies. Drive us to love for our enemies in practical ways. Lord, drive us to share the gospel with our enemies so that we might see them become children of God through faith in Jesus. Oh God, in our day that's so divided, we pray that you would unite us through the love of Christ. And that as we love others in a way that this world cannot understand, in a way that, that models your love for us, that walls of division would break down. Lord, we know that that day is coming when, when we will see the fullness of this kingdom, when there will be no more division or strife, and when love will reign. We long for that day, Lord. Pray that we would live in that reality now as we seek to follow you with our whole hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.